glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that He is with us, He is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Far away in the east, three clever men saw a very bright star. The star that God had put in the sky when Jesus was born. They knew it was a sign. A baby king had been born. They had been waiting for this star, and they knew it would come. He's here, they shouted. He's here. And I'm sure if you would have been there, you would have heard them laughing and singing and dancing until the sun came up. At dawn, they packed up their camels and wrapped gifts for the baby. They brought their most precious treasures of all, frankincense, gold, and myrrh, especially sparkly, lovely-smelling, gleaming things, just right for a king. The three wise men, well, actually, if you had met them, you might have thought that they were kings because they were so rich and clever and important-looking, and they set off. They rode their camels across the desert, up steep, steep mountains, and down into deep, deep valleys, through raging rivers and over grassy plains, night and day and day and night, for hours that turned into days, that turned into weeks, that turned into months and months, until at last they reached Jerusalem. Jerusalem was by far the most important city for miles around. And anyone can tell you that that's where a palace would be. And kings were born in palaces, so that's where they went. But they were in for a surprise. They went to see King Herod, for surely he'd know where the baby was. But he didn't. In fact, he didn't like the sound of a new king. It made him cross. He didn't want anyone to be king except him. But Herod's advisors told the three wise men, what was written in their books, what God had said about the baby king. Go to Bethlehem. That's where you'll find him. Suddenly, the star that they had seen, it began to move again and show them the way. So the three wise men followed the star out of the big city and along the road into the little town of Bethlehem. They followed the star through the streets of Bethlehem, out of the nice part of town, through the not-so-nice part of town, and in, into the really not-so-nice part of town, down a little dirt track until it stopped right over a little house. But wait, it wasn't a palace, and there weren't any guards or servants or flags or red carpets or trumpets or anything. Did they get it wrong? Or was this what God meant? Sure enough, in that little house, there, sitting on his mother's knee, they found him, 
the baby king. The three wise men knelt before the little king. They took off their rich royal turbans and gleaming golden crowns. They bowed their noble heads to the ground and gave him their sparkling treasures. The journey that had begun so many centuries before had led three wise men here to a little town, to a little house, to a little child, to the king that God had promised all of those years before. But this child was a new kind of king. Though he was the prince of all of heaven, he became poor. Though he was the mighty God, he became a helpless baby. This king hadn't come to be a boss. He had come to be a servant. Good to see you this morning. And we especially want to welcome our online audience. Thank you. People across the country watching, including my mom. Hi, mom. Uh, although she'll be disappointed that Paul's not preaching. She really likes his preaching. So uh, let's begin with prayer. This is from a collection of prayers called Every Moment Holy. It's a liturgy for those flooded by too much information. Father, <clears throat> in a world so wired and interconnected, our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief, O oh Lord. More than we can rightly consider, more suffering and scandal than we can respond to, more hostility, hatred, horror, division, and injustice than we can engage with compassion. But you, O oh Jesus, are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror and war. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carried the full weight of the suffering of a broken world when you hung upon the cross and you carry it still. When the cacophony of universal distress unsettles us, remind us that we are but small and finite creatures, never designed to carry the vast abstractions of great burdens. For our arms are too short and our strength too small. Justice and mercy, healing and redemption are your great labors. And yes, it is your good pleasure to accomplish such works through your people, but you have never asked any one of us to undertake more than your grace will enable us to fulfill. Guard us then from shutting down our empathy or walling off our hearts because of the glut of unactionable misery that floods our awareness. 
You have many children in many places around this globe. Move each of our hearts to compassionately respond to those needs that intersect with our actual lives. That in all places, your body might be actively addressing the pain and brokenness of this world. Each of us liberated and empowered by your spirit to fulfill the small part of your redemptive work assigned to us. Give us discernment in the face of troubling news reports. Give us discernment to know when to pray, when to speak out, when to act, and when to simply shut off our screens and devices so that we can sit quietly in your presence. Casting the burdens of this world upon the strong shoulders of the one who alone is able to bear them up, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. On the day of his death, it appeared that any imprints he might have made on a small part of the world the size of Vermont would rapidly disappear. Instead, no human being has had more impact on human history than him. Normally, when a person dies, their influence begins to recede. But this man inverted the normal human trajectory in that a hundred years after his death, he had more influence than when he was alive and with us. 500 years after his death, the same. A thousand years after his death, his influence laid the foundations of most of Europe. 2,000 years after his death, he's had more influence through more followers than any other person who's ever lived among us. Jesus Christ has fingerprinted every facet of our reality, law, government, medicine, science, education. Jaroslav Pelagin, who for years was a professor of history at Yale University, he wrote in 1985, and not a follower of Jesus himself, he said, whether or not you think or believe about or in Jesus of Nazareth, there's no mistaking that no other figure in Western culture in the last 20 centuries has had more influence than this person. In fact, he said, if you were to take a giant super magnet and pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing just a trace of his name, how much would be left? To live in reality is to reckon with the influence of Jesus Christ. Who is this man? That's our question for the next eight weeks. Welcome to Love This Book. 
As we prepare for another round of going through the Gospels and trying to just capture glimpses of this amazing, beautiful life of Jesus Christ. Every week, who is this man? Now, it's been 400 years of silence since the Jewish people have heard from God. From Malachi to Matthew, 400 years of silence, but the Messiah is coming. Are you ready? Merry Christmas. This is going to be our second time celebrating Christmas, which will make three at least for 2020, and we need every one of them, right? You ready? Christmas, Messiah, 400 years of silence, first words of the New Testament. I'm not convinced. Are you ready? First words of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. 400 years of silence, and we get a genealogy? Why? How many of you have done any genealogical study of your family? Raise your hand. Just shout out some numbers. How far back were you able to get generation-wise on whatever side? 17. 17. Did I hear 17? Wow, that's, like, that's almost like to the Mayflower, before the Mayflower. If you've done this, if you spend any time at all trying to do the genealogy, you may have discovered that genealogy is big business. In fact, a $2.3 billion industry last year. There's huge, massive websites, Ancestry.com, Ellis Island, throughout Europe, many different sites uh, offering genealogical help. But do you know who the biggest player in the genealogical world is? The Mormon church. Do you know a Smithsonian article a few years back profiled a mountain in Utah where the Mormon church is attempting to capture the genealogy of the entire human race? Wow. The reason they're doing it is so that they can find their relatives, Mormons who have relatives, and be baptized by proxy for them in order to get all their relatives to the celestial dwelling. Now that's genealogy with purpose. Do you know the other thing that's in vogue in genealogy right now? The Mayflower. It's estimated that there are now 35 million descendants of the original passengers on the Mayflower spread across the world. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that said in any gathering now larger than a couple of thousand, and this was of course pre-COVID, you are likely to have an ancestor of the Mayflower in your midst. Do we have any in our midst this morning? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. Linda Sukup. Linda will be out in the hub for autographs after the service. Have your mask on. We want to hear about this, Linda. My question is, if you were to do some genealogical study and you discovered that you were a descendant of a passenger on the Mayflower, would that change your world? 
No, <laughs> probably not. Now, in Jesus' day, if you were discovered to be a descendant of one of the original tribes of Israel, would that change your world? You better believe it. In fact, you could not own property during Jesus' time in Israel if you couldn't show your genealogical heritage taking you back to one of the original tribes. You couldn't even own land. You had to have genealogy. That's exactly why Matthew is beginning the Christmas story with a boring genealogy. He wants us to know, listen, Jesus has the goods, the credentials, the resume. Now, in verse 1, we get the big picture. Matthew, out of the gate, wants us to know first that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Now, you remember in Genesis 12, way back when we started the Love This Book series, we spent a Sunday on Genesis 12. And there God makes a promise to Abraham that from his progeny will come a nation. And God's showing his mission for the entire world. From this nation of Israel, God wants to bless every other nation and every person in those nations through the nation of Israel. That's why God called Israel. And that's the mission he gave them, was to be God's light and blessing to the entire world. And in order to do that, God made another promise to another one of his followers in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 7, a king by the name of David. And to David, he says, in order to accomplish this mission and be the light and favor of God to the nations, I'm going to give you a leader, David, from your progeny who will be the amazing, powerful, loving king of your people who will transform the, the hearts of your people and lead them in righteousness and peace so that this nation can be a blessing to the entire world. So what Matthew wants us to know, Merry Christmas, is that this Messiah Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, hope for the nations, and a descendant of David, Israel, your leader your Messiah, who will lead you to that mission. In fact, Matthew is so passionate about this, so captured by it, that it's interesting, he breaks into some artistry in this genealogy. Yes, art in a genealogy. That's what I'm saying. What happens is if you read the rest of it, and this week, by the way, we have a reading guide that, on our website that accompanies each of the next eight weeks, and you can go back through and read the passages that we're talking about today. We also throw in some supplemental scriptures, and every Friday we pray a psalm together. So I'd encourage you to go on our website and get this reading guide so that you can all week be concentrating, meditating on this morning. Now, if, where was I? I really went off the track there. Thank you, Todd. You should just come on up here and stand next to me for the next few weeks. Artistry. Look at verse 17. At the end of the genealogy, we read this. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 114. 14 from David to exile to Babylon, two 14s. That's the monarchy, the kings. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Those are the nobodies that no one's heard of until we get to Joseph. Now, we know for a fact that the second 14 had more than 14. It's like the American presidents. Do, do you still have to memorize the American presidents in school? Yes? Good. Whew. Do you? <laughs> 
Now, any Jewish child reading the genealogy here would know all the kings of Judah and have them memorized. So they'd know that what Matthew is doing is he eliminates three and changes the names of two others. Why? Because he can. Why? Because that's what you did in ancient genealogies. You didn't want anyone, and it'd be a whole other interesting sermon to preach on the three kings that were eliminated. They were bad dudes. So Matthew is saying, we don't want the bad dudes. We just want the people. But really what I want you to do is understand there's 14. Why 14? Well, look who's in the 14th place. Who would you guess? David. Even if you do the gematria, which was a really interesting ancient Hebrew practice, wherever your consonants and your name were in the Hebrew alphabet, you had a number to your name, D, V, D. Daleth is the fourth in the Hebrew alphabet. Vav is the sixth. Daleth the fourth. Fourteen. David's gematria is four. Everything's 14. 14 generations. David is 14 in place and 14 by name. Why? Because Matthew really wants us to know that Jesus is the son of David who has a legal claim through Joseph to the throne of David. He's the Messiah. And Matthew gets passionate about it with all this artistry of 14. It's him. It's the Christ, the promised one. The other interesting, look at verse 16, more artistry. What we have here in verse 16 is the first ever attempt to explain a virgin birth in a genealogy. <laughs> it's pretty good. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. So up until this point, everything's been Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom is Jesus, whom in the original is feminine singular. Matthew is being very clear. There's no question that Jesus is the son physically of Mary, but not Joseph. Virgin birth. Matthew is wanting us to know that what's really unique about Jesus of Nazareth, who is this man? He's the son of God. We'll talk more about that next week. What's this driving to? Why a genealogy? I would simply answer the question to show us the resume of Jesus. But if you understand really what's going on here, all this genealogical information, it's to say that God is moving history purposefully to display the glory and the beauty of his son. Now that means a couple things. First thing it means is that God is in control of history. Did you hear that? In 2020, God is in control of history. History since creation has never been in trouble. God is working his plan and his power is plenty. He is engaged. We are not in trouble. 
Just as Matthew shows us in the First Testament that everything was moving to bring the Savior to us, in this age, everything is moving to bring the Savior again to restore all things. My friends, in 2020, we are not in trouble. God is engaged, and he is working his plan. Let me illustrate just from, a, I think, a very interesting historical lesson. Earlier I mentioned those 400 years from Malachi to Matthew. Israel heard nothing from God, was probably out, God, where are you? What's going on? Empires rising and falling, all this chaos. Lord, where are you? Do you remember back in the book of Daniel, 500 years before Christ, Daniel prophesied that in the future, an empire will rise from Greece. 356 B.C., Alexander the Great was born. And you might remember from your history, high school history, Alexander the Great rose to power and by 30 had conquered the largest landmass to that point in the history of the world. By 32, he was dead. Mysteriously, they think he was poisoned. Alexander the Great had a strategy to spread Greek culture throughout all of what we know mostly of Asia and Europe today. What he would do as he conquered city after city after city around the Mediterranean basin is he would build temples and libraries. And in the temples, the Greek language had to be spoken. And in the libraries, which were li really literacy centers, people would learn how to read Greek. So that by the time Alexander's empire was in full, it was the largest landmass and gathering of people who spoke one language. And that continued even after his death because Greek was the, the language of commercial and education life in the Greek empire. So, you know this, right? The biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what, what original language were they written in? Greek. And the organizational letters of the New Testament, what language? Greek. So that when Jesus came, most every person who was literate read Greek, which means that most every person who could read or knew a person that could read could hear the story of Jesus and understand. And then when Alexander was off the picture, Greek fade, Greece fades, the Romans rise to power, and what was the legacy of Rome? The Pax Romana, right? This huge technology of building bridges and roads, such that travel in the Roman Empire was amazing, not only because they had roads everywhere, great roads, but they had police and army who would protect the, the roads. It was peaceful travel, and it was accessible travel such that by the end of the apostles Paul life he sat back in one of his letters and said as far as I can tell the good news of Jesus Christ has traveled the known world now do you think in those 400 years God was just sitting back and said I'm just going to keep my mouth shut for a while and disappear is that what was happening? No. He was preparing everything for the arrival of his son and the news to spread the entire world. What do you think he's doing right now? That's on a global level. I also believe it happens on an individual level. 
Those last 14 people, you've got Iliad and Eliazar and Azor and Achim. Who are these people? Heck if I know. No one knows. You get this idea that in this global perspective, God moving his plan forward, you know how he's doing it? With nobodies like Achim and Azor. Nobodies like Larry Renault and, and you. He is writing history individually through each of our lives, the Jesus story to show the world his beauty and glory through lives such as ours. Everything God writes, he writes with crooked sticks, like you and me. How's your writing going? You exist as a follower of Jesus to write the Jesus story so that everyone in your life can see his beauty and glory through you. So how's your writing going? You know, it gets to decisive moments like walking into your office and deciding whether or not you're going to say hi to that person or that person or that person who you really don't care for. Kids, it gets to you walking into your classroom and deciding, are you going to say hello to your teacher today? Just out of your way, in front of the, hello, thank you, teacher, for being in my life. You have decisions to make by the minute as to whether or not you're going to write the Jesus story and show the world his beauty and his glory. And it gets down to how you say hi to the gal at the register at Target. How's your writing going? The why of a G, thank, Landon's goes going well. Landon, thank you. At least Landon's listening. Why a genealogy? To proclaim Jesus as Messiah. What's really interesting though, that shows who Jesus is, but what about his heart? What's his heart like, this king, this promised one? What's his heart like? Well, that gets to who's in the genealogy. And what really stands out about this genealogy is that Matthew includes women in the genealogy. Now, in a patriarchal ancient culture, that was out of the ordinary. In fact, the only time you would include a woman in the genealogy is if her reputation somehow enhanced your family's stature. So you go into the genealogy, okay, Matthew's got women. Uh, that must be Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wife, you know, the mothers of Israel, they must be in the genealogy, are they? Nope. There's two surprises about the women in the genealogy. First surprise, they're all outsiders. Tamar is a Canaanite. Rahab is a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba is married to a Hittite. They are all outsiders. They are of different race, different skin color, different cultures. They're outsiders. And what Matthew is doing from the opening genealogy is saying, here's the shape of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to reach the outsiders. That's why we had Sarah read the story of the wise men. Do you know what's really going on there? It's not just a happy, happy Christmas story. Do you know what's going on? Matthew is saying that the first 
people in his gospel to worship Jesus, the Messiah, are whom? Persian astrologers. Didn't see that one coming. Outsiders. Jesus came to chase the outsiders and receive their worship. If that's the pattern of his ministry, that needs to be the pattern of our ministry. I need to share something a bit painful as your pastor. While I was down and out, got a lot of emails. All the encouraging ones, thank you. But I got emails asking questions. Like, what do you mean when you say black lives matter? Are you endorsing the organization? Isn't that statement out of bounds? I got emails about, what do you mean when you say systemic racism? Now, as I wrote back to you, I said, first of all, those are valid questions. And those are important questions. And thank you for asking. But here's what pains me. I did not receive a single email asking, Larry, how can I have more interracial friendships in my life? I did not receive a single email from a deeper place of discipleship that realizes, wait, when Jesus comes back again, the kingdom is going to be totally racially reconciled, which means I'll spend the rest of my days worshiping alongside black people and brown people and every race and ethnic group in the world. And Jesus came to begin that now. So the first instinct I should have as a believer is I need some more black friends. If we're going to change this thing, I need some more brown friends. Not a single email about that. Jesus' ministry was to the outsider. How's your writing? Second surprise. These women that he includes, it's like he went through the Old Testament and said, I need to find the most sordid, scandalous stories from Jesus' family that I could tell. There's Tamar, who's the daughter-in-law of Judah, and she marries Judah's sons. He's so wicked, God kills the first son. Judah gives him the second son. He's even more wicked, God kills him. Judah says, I'm not going to give you my third son. You... He'll get killed too. And so this woman, Tamar, is left to fend for herself outside of her family. Now, you and I would not, first of all, want any of this to happen to our daughter like this, nor would we endorse what she did. But you know what she does? She dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. From that union comes twins. And it's the only place in the genealogy where twins' sons are mentioned. And Matthew lists both of them. Why? To say that from this dysfunction comes the Messiah. Second, Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, enough said. Ruth, a Moabite, noble Ruth, young widow, but desperate Ruth, 
an outsider, and she wants to be in a community. And so through Naomi, her mother-in-law's counsel, she has this moment where she goes into a barn, and Boaz, who may or may not have had too much to drink, is there sleeping, and she lies down at his feet and kind of slowly pulls his cover off him and puts it on her. Now, nothing happened, and all of it was above board, and Boaz was righteous, and Ruth was righteous. But if you were in that barn, what would you think was going on? Then there's Bathsheba, victim of a man's power. What's interesting in the genealogy is she's not called by her name. Do you remember what she's called? The wife of Uriah. Bathsheba was forced into an affair by a powerful man. And then she was forced to marry this powerful man, this powerful man who killed her husband, Uriah. And oh, by the way, do you know the name of that most powerful man? David. Isn't the irony compelling? In that, if you would want anyone on your genealogy, anyone, who would you want? David. But Matthew goes out of his way to choose the most sordid, shameful experience from David's life and says, from this dysfunction, the Messiah comes. What's the point? The point is this. Matthew chooses individuals who in their past have the most sordid, scandalous, suspicious details to show that in Jesus' family, all are welcome, especially sinners. Especially sinners. Christianity is an equal opportunity for sinners to become saints. Jesus' family is a collection of the broken, a collection of the weak, a, co a collection of the misunderstood, a collection of the suspicious, which means that the heart of Christianity is grace. Bold and boundless favor on the sinner. That's Christianity. So some of you came in today feeling like Tamar, desperate about your future. What's going to happen to me? Lord, nothing has turned out the way in my life that I'd hoped. I cannot even picture a future right now. Some of you came in today like Rahab, enslaved to your past, shame, dirt, dragging around again and again hard and difficult decisions you made in your past. Some of us came in feeling like Ruth, noble, but an outsider and always an outsider, always feeling outside, even at church, especially at church. No friends, no group. Some of us came in this morning feeling like the wife of Uriah, having been abused and victimized by power of another. And you're always thinking, playing the tape in your head, if you only knew what's happened to me, you'd want nothing to do with me. And it's for all of us 
who have walked in these desperate situations that we now again enter the presence of God. And I'd like to invite you to pray with me. Let's just consciously enter the presence of God and pray together. We are in Jesus' presence. There are dark places, lonely places, desperate places, shameful places, aren't there? And we are all afraid to look at them. Maybe they're in your past, maybe they're in your heart, but the presence of Jesus Christ, God with us, is to cry, holy over you, holy. How holy? Holy enough to be born in you. Holy enough to be your family. He is not ashamed to call you family. Run to him. Tamar, you're my grandma. Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, you're my great-grandma. What's this world coming to? Your baby, the Messiah, the Son of God who wants to be born again into you. And he calls you child of God. So if you have a place like that this morning, loneliness, shame, desperation, then quietly in this moment, pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, come. Cry holy over me. Cry holy over me. Waterstone, I beg you to believe the gospel. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in sin. It is by grace you have been saved. Let's proclaim that together in song.